Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah chapter 62 this evening. It was early July 2020 when we began this study through the book of Isaiah. And it looks like we will finish it in 2022 because tonight will be the last Wednesday night teaching service that we'll have for 2021. And we'll get back together on Wednesday nights after the first of the year. However, on December 15th, do mark your calendar and come join us for a night of singing and music here. I'm very grateful, I must say, that you all have been as patient and kind with me as you've been, that you have allowed me to go for more than a year, year and a half now, to go through the book of Isaiah. I think that's one of the reasons that it's very, very rare to find churches that will go through the book of Isaiah in a systematic fashion. We've kind of gone chapter by chapter, but then we've looked at every single verse in those chapters week by week, and it's taken this long, and I think that's why, for the most part, people are not willing to do that. I am very grateful that you all have allowed me to do that. I hope that you have learned a lot about God through this series in Isaiah. Chapter 61 and chapter 62 of Isaiah are really a summation of all the promises that God has made to Israel in the book of Isaiah so far. Chapter 62 is a very short chapter, and it's not even a complicated chapter. There's no language in it that requires any great deal of exegesis or explanation. It's good to know a couple of little details to help understand the text, but the text is preeminently understandable on its own because it says what it says and it says it very clearly. And this is one of the complications of this chapter is that people in the modern church just don't like what it says. It says what it says. It says it just as clearly as it can possibly say it. It's not symbolic. It's not allegorical. It's not difficult to understand. And yet there are so many systems, so many eschatologies, so many theological overviews out there in the church world that just cannot allow Isaiah and God to say what these two chapters say. And I think that's the reason why when people do teach out of Isaiah, They go to their favorite pet areas of it. They won't do the whole book, but they like in the year that King Uzziah died. They like that. They like unto us a son is born and a child is given. They like that. They'll quote that a lot now with the Christmas season coming up. And of course, they like Isaiah 
predicting that Christ himself is going to be the suffering servant of God who's going to take away our sins. And, and so people concentrate on those three areas of the book while ignoring the balance of the book, the great majority of the book, which says that God is going to punish Israel, scatter Israel, but then in the very places that he scatters them, he's going to go and get them. And he's going to take them back and plant them in their land, and they're never going to be removed again. And then there's all this language of a glorious future and a kingdom to come, and all of it is centered around Israel and Jerusalem in particular. That just doesn't fit in a whole lot of theological systems. And so people prefer their systems over what the Bible actually says. Tonight, I'm going to read through chapter 61, even though we studied it in a bit of detail last week, but it is really the run-up to chapter 62. And so you really need to read the two of them as a combination. You need to read the two of them because it's one continuous thought. Chapter 63 then gets into God's vengeance against the Gentile nations, and so that's a good place to take a break for a few weeks. When we come back here next year, we will pick up there in chapter 63. And then 63, 64, 65, 66, we've got four more chapters left in Isaiah. That'll take us about a month to get through. And then hopefully we will go on into a study of the Psalms. Okay, so that's the overview of what we're gonna do tonight. Jesus walked into the temple, as I said last week. He was handed the scroll of the book of Isaiah. He found the place that we know as chapter 61. And he stood up and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. At that point, Jesus put down the scroll. The next thing that Isaiah wrote was, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to grant those who are mourning in Zion to give them a garland instead of ashes, beauty for their ashes. And the oil of gladness instead of mourning, instead of sadness. The mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. And they, Zion, will be called oaks of righteousness. Okay, now the very fact that Jesus picked up the first part of that chapter and quoted it. And then said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing means that Jesus has just given credibility to chapter 61. And so I made the argument last week that he was not ignoring what came just before chapter 61, nor was he ignoring the balance of chapter 61. The very fact that he gave validity to this portion of Isaiah means that Jesus himself believed that the promises contained herein are actually true, are actually valid. And that's why people try to ignore chapter 62, because chapter 62 and what we're going to read in the balance of 61 
are all validated and verified by Jesus himself because, as Isaiah has already told us, all of these promises of God are going to be accomplished through his own right arm, through David's greater son, through the branch that grows from Jesse. All of this language means that the promises that are in the book of Isaiah come true through Christ. And so we're not preaching that God has two separate ways of salvation. Instead, what we know from the Bible is in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and are amen. Verily, it will be so. But they're all yes through Christ, as demonstrated by chapter 61, where Jesus himself read it and then said, that's all fulfilled in me. You're hearing me read this right now. And it is fulfilled right now in your hearing. So therefore, since Jesus has validated it, then all the promises that we find in the balance of 61 and in chapter 62 are all validated by Jesus because they're being completed by Jesus. They're being satisfied through Jesus. They're going to be fulfilled because of Jesus. And so that answers the big question of the book of Isaiah. And I have asked this question several times over the course of the last year and a half. It's unquestionable that Isaiah says Israel is nothing but guilty. They are Jacob. They are heel catcher. They are supplanters. They are wicked people. They are idol chasers. They are stiff-necked and hard-hearted. They are not following after the law of God, and in fact, they are continually rebellious. And yet the same book says God's going to gather them. They're going to be called the people of God. He'll be their God. They will be his people. And that this glorious future exists for them. So you have this tremendous contrast in the entirety of the book of Isaiah where you have these very wicked, depraved, rebellious people who have this promise of restoration and salvation. God keeps calling himself the redeemer of Israel in this book. He keeps calling himself the savior of Israel. And so... How does God get them from their rebellious state to the point of glorious future? Because both of those are clearly stated throughout the book. Wicked, rebellious, sinful people who have this glorious future. And the answer, the answer to how God gets them from their rebellion all the way to their full restoration, being planted back in their own land and being children of righteousness, how he does it is Christ. How he does it is through Isaiah 53, through the suffering servant, through the one who paid for the sins of Israel. By his stripes we are healed. So if that is the case, then everything that we're about to read is not only true because Isaiah said it, but it's true because Jesus validated it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, 
the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, of Yahweh, so that he may be glorified. That's the next key concept in the book of Isaiah. Why are these rebellious people being saved by the Redeemer of Israel? For his own glory. For the exact same reason that Paul says any of us are saved. That he's doing it to the praise of the glory of his grace. He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And he is demonstrating his love, his compassion, his grace, and also his consistency to his own word, to his own promises, because he has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he is absolutely going to fulfill despite the fact that the people of Israel are very, very sinful. He's doing all of this so that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, and they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. One of the arguments that people make against the restoration of Israel is they say, well, it's destroyed. It's knocked down. The temple doesn't exist anymore. You know, there's the mosque of Omar up there. You can't build on the Temple Mount anymore. And so what can you do? You know, nothing God can do. His hands are tied because Jerusalem's in ruins. And yet the promise of Isaiah is they're going to rebuild the ancient ruins. And they're going to raise up the former devastations. And they're going to repair the ruined cities, the desolation that exists for many generations. And strangers, foreigners, non-Jews will stand and pasture your flocks. And foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. And you will be called the priests of Yahweh. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. And you will eat the wealth of the Gentile nations. And in their riches, you will boast. Instead of your shame, you're going to have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. And I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So, verse 7, they, Zion, are promised everlasting joy. And then in verse 8, God's going to make an everlasting covenant with them. And this is all part and parcel of the portion of Isaiah that Jesus stood up, found, and read out loud. So that means to me, to my way of thinking, stop me if I'm wrong here, that means that God's going to do this because he not only continually makes this promise over and over again, but he has also provided the means. And Isaiah has already explained the means. The means is Christ. He's going to accomplish all of this. And so these promises are not 
done away with. These promises are not spiritualized away, nor are these promises somehow transferred to the church who is never referred to as Jerusalem anywhere in the Bible. Everlasting joy is going to be theirs because I, the Lord, love justice and I hate robbery and the burnt offerings and I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And then their offspring will be known among the Gentile nations and their descendants will be known in the midst of the peoples, the Goyim, the Gentiles. And all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. How great is the blessing going to have to be on the descendants of Israel for the Gentile nations to recognize them as those who are blessed of the Lord? That's part of the promise. That's part of the everlasting covenant God is going to make with them. Verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. Here is Israel's response then. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Chapter 62 then starts, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. Now there is some discussion about who's speaking here. The conversation that we just read, starting in verse 8, it's the Lord speaking, for I, the Lord, love justice. Starting at verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord seems to be the response that Israel will have once they are restored. Chapter 62 might be the beginning of God responding back to them. Some people argue that it is Isaiah himself speaking, or it could be a continuation of Israel speaking. What we know for sure is in a minute, God himself is clearly the one speaking. I tend to think that this is God himself speaking. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation goes forth like a burning torch. Okay, so whoever is speaking here, Whether this is Isaiah saying, I'm going to keep proclaiming this promise over and over because God has revealed all of this to me. Or whether it is Israel saying this and saying, we believe these promises. God has committed himself to these promises. And in a few minutes, that's what we're going to read is that God is going to say, never let me forget. Keep telling me. Keep reminding me that I promised you this stuff. So it may be Israel speaking if it's God who is speaking then listen to what he has just said, that he is not going to keep silent, he's not going to keep quiet because of Jerusalem, for Zion's sake, until her righteousness goes forth from her like brightness, which is the very same thing he just promised her, that they were going to be oaks 
planted trees of righteousness. And God is going to stay at it. God is going to keep his promise. He's going to continue his covenant with them until that righteousness breaks forth and her salvation is like a torch that is burning. And the nations, the Gentiles, the very ones we've been reading about in the previous chapter, the nations will see your righteousness. Now that's clearly God speaking. And all kings, the leaders of all the nations, will see your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. In a moment, he's going to tell us what that new name is. So there's no mystery about what the new name is going to be. So the nations, the kings, the Gentiles are all going to see the glory and the blessings that God is pouring out on Israel. This is one of the reasons that I have said continually to you that when they finally accomplish this glorious future and this glorious kingdom, the blessings that are going to come to the Gentile nations are going to flow through Jerusalem, through Israel, and then out to the Gentile nations. Here again, God makes a separation, makes a division between the Gentile nations and Israel, who he's in covenant with. Israel, who he loves. Israel, who he is blessing primarily. And then the blessings that come to anybody else have to come through Jerusalem to them. Because you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate, and you will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of Yahweh. You're going to be a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So God is not only going to make them a blessed nation, he's going to make them kings over all the other nations. They're going to be a beautiful and a blessed royal diadem because of the hand of the Lord that's going to accomplish this for them. So this is really, truly a glorious promise God is giving them. And yet it's perfectly in league with everything else we've been reading in the book of Isaiah. Verse 4, here's the new name. Up till now you've been called forsaken because I've been punishing you and I've been scattering you. So the nations in their arrogance have said that I've given up on you. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land. Will it any longer be said, desolate? Instead, the new name is, but you will be called, my delight is in her. And the new name for your land is going to be married. So instead of being a desolate wife, instead of being an abandoned wife, the new name for your land, for Jerusalem, for Israel, when I regather you back to the land, your land is going to be called married, which, by the way, is the word Beulah. That's what it means. You're going to be, whenever you sing the song, Beulah land. So what you're talking about, the married land of God, the people of God who are finally restored to their eternal husband. No longer will it be said to you, forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married, because the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. Does that sound like God has abandoned the idea of restoring Israel to their land? 
Instead, what God has said is, I've put you away, but where is the bill of your divorcement? That's also Isaiah. And then promises of restoration because your husband is your redeemer. And then ultimately God says, this land that I'm bringing you back to, I'm going to be married to it. The whole land, the whole group, the whole nation of Israel, you're going to be my delight and I will be married to you. Verse 5, for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Well, you combine those two statements, and what you see is God has cast this promise of restoration and marrying the land. He's cast it out into the future. It's not going to be you. It's going to be your sons. It's going to be your offspring. It's going to be your seed. Your sons are going to be joined to you, even though they are scattered, even though I have cast them out of the land into the Gentile nations. They're going to be restored, as we have been reading They're going to be brought back to this land by the Gentile nations, and they are going to be betrothed to you, the nation of Israel. And the same way that a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Okay, quick and easy question. Micah, on your wedding day, how much did you like April? She's waiting for an answer. She's waiting. She... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's tough to say. I mean, you're rejoicing in her, right? You're standing there in a rented suit with some other guys you know, and you're waiting to see your bride come down there. And she turns that corner, and she's dressed like a bride, and she is coming toward you in declaration that of all the men on planet Earth, I've chosen to spend the rest of my life with you. How full do you feel at that moment? God wants you to remember that feeling. Because he says, that's what it's going to be like when I, God, rejoice over Israel. That same sense of, that's my bride. It's remarkable language considering their rebellion and their sinfulness and their stiff necks and their hard hearts. And yet God says that he's going to change them from inside. He's going to take out their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. He's going to deposit his spirit in them. He's going to make them his own people, and he is going to be their God. He is going to do everything necessary to take them from their fallen sinful estate and make them somebody that he can absolutely thrill and glory over. But he's the one that does it all. The theology of the book of Isaiah is identical to the theology of salvation that we believe, which is why Paul so often reaches back to Isaiah to prove his point so that he can prove, you know, all of us like sheep have gone astray. That's true. There's none good, no, not one. True. Isaiah said so, I say so. But he also says that it's God then who has to do absolutely everything necessary, and he does do it not because of you, but he does it to the glory of his own grace. It's the same thing Isaiah says. And that's where that Pauline theology of salvation comes from because there is only one God in the Bible and he's only telling one story and salvation in every aspect in any moment of time among any people group is always God working completely monergistically to accomplish what he chooses to do. 
For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. God's about to create a comparison here. For Jerusalem, just like for any walled city, in order for the people within the walls to get any sleep, they have to know that there's somebody on the wall staying awake. There's somebody watching for the enemy. And they don't go to sleep, and they're constantly crying out. The idea of a town crier, and 3 a.m., and all is well. And so that's the idea of a watchman. They're constantly watching that the city is safe. And they never stop all day and all night. They never keep silent. God says the same way that that's how the watchmen work, you who remind the Lord, in other words, you who pray to God, how often have I said to you that after Daniel's example, Daniel reads Jeremiah and the promise that Israel is going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And Daniel takes that promise back to God and prays it to God and says, this is what you've promised. Now just do what you said you're going to do. Okay, well, Isaiah says the same thing. Go back and pray to God the very thing he said he's going to do. And here is God saying, you who come and pray to me in that way, you who come to remind me of the promises I have made, you who do remind the Lord, never take any rest for yourself and never give him any rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So here's God himself saying, okay, I've made the promise. My word is good. I'm going to do it. But you keep reminding me, and don't you stop reminding me till I do it. That's remarkable. Can you see now why Jesus would say to his apostles, when you pray, pray thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here are all these promises of what it's going to be like on earth when there is this outbreak of righteousness, heavenly righteousness. And so the same way that Isaiah says, when you come to remind God, when you come to pray to God, never stop reminding me until I've actually done everything I said I was going to do. And Jesus validates that and says, when you pray to God, pray to him, do what you said you're going to do. You said you're bringing a kingdom. You said your righteousness was going to break out on earth. So your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. And give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. If God requires of Israel to keep reminding him and don't stop reminding me until I have done it, doesn't that sound like God intends to do it? You've got the very word of God saying, I will make Jerusalem a praise on the earth. Is it yet? No. Is it a crown of glory? Is it a royal diadem in the hand of your God right now? 
Is it beauty before the hand of the Lord for all the nations to see? Are people walking around planet Earth going, there's an Israelite. He's the blessed of the Lord. Let me follow him back to Jerusalem. Is any of that happening yet? No. Does it have to happen? Yes. Absolutely. Because if you can prove that this part of the word of God is not true, if you can prove that God can swear things like this and then say, "Eh, never mind. You know, life went by, time changed. It's been a couple thousand years. I've changed my mind. Then you have no confidence whatsoever that anything he said to you is a firm promise. Because that's a capricious God. That's a God who can change his mind. That's a God who can say, I'm going to save you, Steve. And then you get all Steve on him. And then he comes back and says, never mind. I didn't mean you. That's God admitting that he didn't have sufficient power to actually accomplish what he promised he was going to do. And that his almighty power was overtaken, overwhelmed by the superior will of human beings. Rebellious human beings. God-hating human beings. That God would have to step back and say, huh? didn't know you were going to be this bad. Never mind. I give up on you. And since you don't find that anywhere in the Bible, and since it is actually unthinkable, then when God says here that he is going to establish Jerusalem and make it a praise in the earth, that is going to happen. Amen. And you can see why so many churches, systems, Theologies, eschatologies, are not comfortable with that. So, of course, my advice is trash your system. Throw away your eschatology. If anything that you believe, if any tradition of yours, if any denominational affiliation of yours doesn't allow you to read the word of God for what it actually says, it's not the word of God that's at fault. It's your system, it's your thinking, it's your theology. Because the word of God says, verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm. A couple of times now, Isaiah has referred to Christ as the strong arm of the Lord. If that is the case here, then God has just declared and sworn it by Christ that he is going to accomplish these things. Remember at the beginning of this evening's lesson, I said, God has not only told you what he's going to do, but he told you what the means is. And the means of doing it is the finished sacrificial work of Christ. So here is God swearing by Christ, because he's the means, that God is going to do this. This is a promise that God has not only made to Israel, it's a promise he has made to his son, which is part of the reason that his son, who is the redeemer of Israel, came to the planet and died to accomplish these things that God had sworn to do. The everlasting covenant is made through Christ. And the Lord swears it. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food to your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. For those who garner it, those who actually grow it, those who actually dig it up out of the ground, for those who garner it are the ones who are going to eat it. And those people will praise the Lord. 
And those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. How many ways does God have to say, they will be my people, I will be their God? Not only am I going to bless them abundantly so that all their grain belongs to them, nobody's going to drink their new wine that they labored for, but when they eat and when they drink the work of their own hands, they're going to bless me. They're going to praise me because they're going to recognize me as their provider. Those who garner it will eat it and they will praise Yahweh. And those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through. Go through the gates. Clear the way for the people. Actually, the more correct translation is clear the way of the people. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about regathering Israel. He's talking about making the way smooth so that Israel can come back to Jerusalem, come back to their promised land. Go through. Go through the gates of the city. Clear the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones and lift up a standard. A flag that declares who these people are. These are the people of the Lord. These are the tribes of Israel. And let everybody know who you are. Hold a standard. Hold a flag that says that's who we are. And we're heading home to the very land that God has promised us in perpetuity. Clear the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. And lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold. Yahweh, the Lord, has proclaimed this to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes, and behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. Tom, if you would, go to the very end of your Bible. Revelation 22 And you're going to read Revelation 22, verse 12. I guess it's providential that we're studying Revelation on Sunday mornings at the moment. But here God has said, proclaim this to the ends of the earth. Let everybody know it. Say, declaring to all the peoples to go find the children of Israel who belong to God. Say to the daughter of Zion, your salvation is here. You know, I think this is part of the reason that Jesus said, when speaking of the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, the people he was talking to at the moment were Jews, were Israelites. And he said to them, when you see these things come to pass, look up, your redemption draws nigh. Now, it's real easy for us in the 21st century church to say, oh, he's talking to us, the church. And he's saying, when you see these troubles happening, when you see all this occurring, look up, your redemption draws nigh. Oh, that means that Christ is about to come back. But what it really means is, contextually, Jesus said, when you see all these troubles coming, you, Israel, look up, because the redemption of Israel is coming. The restoration of your kingdom the satisfaction of all the promises God has made through his prophets throughout the Old Testament. Look up, because it's about to happen. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, they quote this promise from Isaiah. And so now you're even going to know biblically 
exactly where this is going to happen. Okay, so Revelation 22, verse 12, Tom. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Behold, his reward is with him, says Isaiah, and his recompense before him. It's exactly what Jesus said. When I return, I'm going to accomplish all of this stuff that the prophets of God has promised because God has covenanted with Israel to accomplish this very thing. And as I keep saying, he promised it through Christ. So when Christ comes back, he says, and now I'm doing that. Now I'm going to accomplish all the things that were promised to Israel. Which, not to put too fine a point on it, is why they are gathered ultimately to a place called the New Jerusalem. How obvious is that? It's kind of a duh moment that they're being gathered back to their land and to the New Jerusalem. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense goes before him. Two groups then. He's going to recompense them. He's going to pay them back. And he's going to reward some people. So verse 12 says, And they, the Gentiles, will call them Israel, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Is any of that language difficult? Is it hard to understand? Does it need to be spiritualized? No. No. So then the Gentile nations are going to call Israel the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Look up, your redemption draws nigh. And you're going to be called sought out. Years ago, I was at the church over in Franklin, and there was a visiting pastor who came in and preached a message where he said that the church are the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and that our nickname now is sought out. And he carried on and carried on about the fact that we've been elected, that we've been chosen, that God chose us before the foundation of the world, and that we didn't seek God, God sought us, and that's why our nickname is sought out. It was a beautiful message, wonderful message. Just had the wrong emphasis on who it was for because he never read the last verse, a city not forsaken. The church is never referred to as a city. The city throughout this text is Jerusalem. And God says that ultimately the redeemed people of God, the holy people are Israel and the new name they're going to be given After he says, you're going to be called Beulah, you're going to be called married. You're going to be called not forsaken, but you're going to be beloved. You're ultimately going to be called sought out because God scattered them. And now after a couple thousand years, people think, well, how's God going to regather them? Because he's going to go find them. He's going to go seek them out. So you're going to be called the sought out and ultimately called a city Not forsaken. Not forsaken by God, just forsaken by modern theology. Modern theology is wrong. Jerusalem being sought by God 
is said all the way through the Bible and very, very importantly, validated, verified by Christ and accomplished through Christ. And that is the whole story of Isaiah. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.